Cars, start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network, welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski, I'll be your host for the next hour as we discuss everything racing. Uh, before we do that, let me introduce you to the panel I have assembled for you tonight. With me as always, Mr. Gray Warren from Richard Childress Racing. Gray, how are you? Doing great. Alright, Richard Uden, between jobs but something on the horizon. Richard, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. All right, from IndyCar.com and Motorsports Tribune, Mr. Joey Barnes is in the house. Joey, how are you? Doing great, thanks for having me. All right, and and last but certainly not least, least our uh, NASCAR correspondent uh, over there at Motorsports Tribune, Seth Eggert, coming back from a trip to Bristol in the rain and the snow. Seth, good to have you on. How are you tonight? Glad to be back. All right, glad to have you here. So we had all three major race series in action this weekend. We had Formula One in Shanghai, Daniel Ricciardo taking the win there. Um, IndyCar was at Long Beach, the longest-running street street race in uh, North America. Alexander Rossi, um, impressive run, took the win there. And then um, NASCAR had a uh, rain-delayed race held in two parts, uh, part one Sunday, part two Monday. Uh, at the end of the day, it was Kyle Busch taking yet another Bristol win and another win to uh, to pad his win total. Uh, good old Kyle Busch. But uh, let's start off with IndyCar. Now, Joey, you've been traveling a lot. You were at Phoenix. You were at Long Beach. You're getting ready to head to Alabama. Um, Rossi was just darn impressive. And, uh, you know, my, my crazy fact of the day is that uh, – Rossi was the last American to start a Formula One race. Rossi now has wins at Indianapolis, Watkins Glen, and now Long Beach. And all three of these tracks were the host of the United States Grand Prix for Formula One. And here's a guy that uh, Formula One sort of turned their back on winning all these tracks. What does this fact mean? Probably nothing in the long run, but it's interesting nonetheless. But uh, Rossi has really come on strong as a championship contender, but... There was another guy who had a really strong run that was ruined by an unfortunate series of events. Uh, that would be Sebastian Bourdais, who won the season opener. And, Joey, you wrote a great story about that. That's on IndyCar.com if you'd like to catch it. But, uh, Joey, let's uh, let's just kind of dig into this um, um, Long Beach race. Uh, uh, you were there. You've written about it, uh, covered it. So uh, I, I'm just going to give you the floor. Yeah, so I think – Looking at Alexander Rossi, from my point of view, and what I've been telling everybody since the race ended on Sunday was just the fact that this is the gradual maturation of a driver coming into the series 
that you hope to see whenever we talk about all these young young guns getting up here and we think, okay, they've got the potential to one day be great. Well, Rossi, we, we knew he was fast in F1, and he, you know, clutch coasted his way to an Indy 500. But to do things outright on pace from a championship perspective, we're seeing that growth uh, year over year. And, yeah, he's also, you talk about those tracks he's won on, there are also three different types of track. It's a street course, it's a natural road course, and it's a super speedway. So the only thing missing from that resume now is a short oval. Will Power has him pegged as the championship you know, guy to beat. So I, I think that that certainly shows how good Alexander Rossi has been. And when you think about the fact that he's also the only guy to have podiums in each of the first three races, he's could have won each of those races if not for a little miscues like running into Wickens at at St. Pete and then the pit road issue at at Phoenix passing 53 cars and still managing to finish at P3 it's remarkable to see what he's been able to do and I think now we're really starting to see what I've kind of been expecting is when's this changing of the guard going to start happening in Andretti Autosport and I feel like you know, now we're starting to see, like, Ryan Hunter Ray has always been viewed as the leader. He's Captain America for Andretti Autosport. But we're starting to see maybe a little bit of a change of the tide to where Andretti Autosport's going to go as far as Alexander Rossi is going to take them. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it just incredible drive, dominant drive for the weekend. Pretty reminiscent of what he did at Watkins Glen. And, you know, keep in mind that it's not just his drive that's, grown in his, in his racing craft but it's also his they're really clicking him and jeremy millis his engineer so as we look at barber as we look at indy I, it's going to be really tough to beat because i don't really see a huge weakness whenever i look at all the tracks that they go to there's not really a huge weakness for him no and the interesting thing is you know when we talk about the team as a whole andretti autosport they really haven't had a championship contender since you know hunter ray uh, when he took the title in in twelve, uh, mind you, they were probably hurt more than other teams with the uh, Arrow Kit era. Uh, they just they just never could figure it out. You know, while uh, Graham Rahal was taking some wins here and there, the, the Honda package was never the, the match of the Chevrolet as the, the Penske cars and um, and even the Ganassi cars when they were still with Chevrolet kind of trounced them. But uh, this uh, this could be. You know, the fifth title for um, Andretti Autosports, I know it's early, early in the season, but uh, this is the, 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 the best start for that team since, you know, the pre-Ericot era. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, a year ago, we were talking about Andretti Autosport running really fast at Long Beach, but all four cars getting a DNF for mechanical or electrical gremlins. They turn around and put three in the top ten, and uh, with Marco and Zach Veach finishing fourth, and then Rossi with the win, Ryan Hunter Ray had incredible pace. So it wasn't for a lack of trying. It was just he kept getting involved in somebody else's mess half the time. At the start of the race, he broke his front wing after the accordion effect of Ray Hall hitting Pagano. And then later in the race, Sato got a hold of his right rear and punctured his tire. So there was all sorts of things that were happening to him. But, yeah, I mean, on the street courses also two years ago, I mean, Andretti Autosport was abysmal. So, and you think about where they've come from. The last guy they've had in the top five in the championship was Marco Andretti, and the year after Hunter Ray won in twelve, Marco finished fifth in twenty thirteen. It's been that long since we've been able to say Andretti Autosport's been a relevant championship contender, and I think that this 
this is certainly a year that they look ready to pounce. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports have hit on some things, even though they don't have a lot of time together. They're incredibly fast. And then you look at, you know, Andretti Autosport, obviously, with what they've been able to do with sustaining a relatively the same engineering staff, mostly the same driver lineup. And then you, you add to the fact that Penske's Penske and Scott Dixon is Scott Dixon. Uh, Dixon's teammate Ed Jones finishes P3 on, on Sunday. So it's incredible to see what they've been what this season has been able to bring. And every single race, you can't say, hasn't been entertaining. Uh, I know some might disagree on the Phoenix perspective, but we still ended up with, a, with an ending where we really didn't know who was going to come out of that one. So uh, it's been unpredictable. It's been wild. And I think it's just going to continue to be that way going to Barber. Absolutely. I think, well, may, I think Board A may have something to say as far as championship contender, uh, you know, being a championship contender, because he's been right there in, in all three of the races <laughs> we've seen so far. You know, cut out the mistakes that he's had, and uh, and he's right there. Yeah, his pace has been ridiculous. Uh, I've talked to him both at Phoenix and then at after Long Beach, and I... <laughs> I have difficulty trying to figure out about Sunday if it was a pass or if, or whatnot. I mean, I think when you look at it, you could argue both sides, right? Like, the to set up the scenario for the listeners, Borde's uh, coming out of the hairpin, turn 11 on the main straight, and he's in third making a run on Dixon, who's making a run on a lap car. And at a street course, he takes it three wide and proceeds to use push to pass once he gets past the start-finish line. And as he's approaching Dixon alongside, you look ahead of him and turn one's on the far left, and Mateus Leist is, is coming up on him very quickly. Uh, I mean, so the fact that he could sit there before they got to Leist, swing in, not hit anything, and make a move. I mean, he said that it wasn't necessarily a pass as much as it was just a save. Um, you know, he he... When you look at it, it kind of looks like maybe Dixon moved a little bit, but, you know, you wonder, okay, well, did he have to move, did Borde have to move that much in response to Dixon? But, I mean, these are all split-second decisions, and these are the most talented drivers in the world to race this close and to not hit anything. So I think that uh, to pull off a pass like that was incredible. It was funny to me to see him after he got penalized um, for saying, okay, you got to give the position back, you, you made a pass where you blurred the line on pit exit to make the pass, he gives the pass back, and then literally 30 seconds later, he just takes it right back on Dixon because he said he was just straight pissed off. So um, Borde's pace is ridiculous. Um, I think that, yeah, everything that we saw, we were hoping to see last year where up until Indy, he was a threat everywhere, and then Indy obviously with the, with the bad hit and, and getting hurt. We may be in for that kind of board A, hopefully without any incidents moving forward, because he's just been unreal for a guy that's. We always talk about these guys that are in their they're approaching forty years old, and when are they going to get out of the seat? Which is funny to me because we used to see AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti race until they're in their fifties, uh, and you know, and, certainly board A's pace is Al, Al Unser and Gordon Johncock. Yeah, all these guys were winning. <laughs> over 40 so but uh so now the penalty was it warranted was it not that's been up for debate all week um but then the unfortunate uh timing of the yellow uh with the pit stop again we've seen this kind of really wreck um guys races 
in IndyCar where it's almost become a running joke, you know, with uh, where where the, we go ahead and close the pits and, and gap up the field. But if you've just pitted <coughs> prior to the yellow, you prior you pitted right as the yellow came out. Uh, you're you're going to the back of the field, and I don't know if there's anything that could be done differently with that. Uh, but again, it really ruined Bourdais' day, and it put him. I mean, in his own words, he said, "Put him in the back of the field, racing with idiots." Um, I don't know if the uh, the idiot term was warranted, uh, but uh, he, he ended up having contact with. Uh, he got uh, dumped. There, yeah, there was, exactly. There was no exactly he yeah. Got yeah. So so yeah, uh, Joey, talk us through that one because that's that's the other half of the story. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Board A uh, is getting ready to pit along with Dixon, and as they're as the pit road at, at Long Beach is really finicky because there's literally a gap in the wall. You just, you make the, come off, you peel off to the right, and you make a judgment call to just swing swing the right and get on pit road. And in the middle of that happening, Board A's teammate, Clayman DeMello, I think it was turn nine uh, is where he ended up hitting, and that the yellow light came on right as he approached, and Dixon... Uh, did get serviced, and Bourdais drove on through because the rule of thumb is when pit, ro- pit roads closed and you get serviced, you have to pull uh, drive through. You have to get a drive through penalty usually. So Bourdais waited, went through, came back, pitted, restarted eleventh. Dixon came out, was P three, but eventually had to serve that drive through penalty um, right after the restart, I believe it was. So I that rule's really finicky. I always like the idea of, I mean, look, it's a judgment call anytime, right? Like, if it, even with NASCAR, there's situations with close pits and things like that. I think that you, it's a guessing game. You want to get to pit road when you see an incident? It's always been get to pit road before the yellow flies. And I think that's still the case. Um, if you're in your pit stall and the yellow flies, it's not like you're going to sustain the penalty in IndyCar. It's just that, that you lucked into an opportunity. And, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. In Rossi's case, he was both on, on Sunday. And that's just the nature of racing. I mean, we saw it in Australia with the virtual safety car and situation and the F1 race. It's just being able to, to catch everything in the right situation. And But, yeah, I mean, for Bourdais to come out, with that kind of pace that he had, because uh, he started ninth in the race, uh, qualifying pace is not their strong suit, but man, race pace, they absolutely nailed it every single weekend. And, uh, well, I mean, even qualifying for Phoenix since he was on pole, but yeah, street courses, um, restarting 11th, ends up getting kind of rear-ended by Jordan King, ends up backwards uh, with like, staring at Wickens and Hunter Ray. It just, um, and that more or less, I think Hunter Ray said he went from the back to the front five times. So it was just, the race was really crazy, really chaotic. Unfortunately, Bourdais, Hunter Ray, guys like that who had incredible cars, incredible pace, were uh, were a victim of some of the chaos that, that happened of the day. And, you know, and that's the byproduct of, of a tight street race. And we've seen that on Long Beach at Long Beach, as long as I can remember Long Beach. But, uh, I, you know, the good news was that I had read a little story today that uh, the attendance at Long Beach... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Podcasting is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Introducing the science of a podcast hosted by Spreaker from iHeart. This weekly podcast looks at the many sides of the podcasting industry, from success, growth, and technology to the varying challenges we all face. This is one podcast about podcasting you don't want to miss. New episodes launch every Tuesday. Listen to the science of a podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Long Beach was the the highest it's been since the cart era. So, oh God, it was crowded, man. Yes, yeah, like, so the, fa- the, fan, the fans are coming back, um, enjoying the new car, enjoying the uh, the new stars of the series. Um, the TV ratings are still, you know, eh, you know. Uh, I think it was a point two seven. I tell you what was brilliant about Long Beach. Um, I sit there Friday and I was like, man, there's so many people. I, I, it was tough to get through a crowd of people. And just as soon as you want to cuss at something because you're trying to get through the crowd, you're remembering, wait a minute, <laughs> this is awesome. And I, it's funny, what they did at Long Beach was something I wish more racetracks would probably do. Some of them will say they can never take the financial hit. But it was a, from what I was told, it was a free Friday. So any fans could come in, walk in. Um, walk around, go to the expo, uh, watch practices for Pirelli World Challenge, IMSA, IndyCar, Stadium Super Trucks, watch Formula Drift cars at, at uh, I think it was the east end of the track. And it's an opportunity for people that don't know about the sport. It's not going to cost them anything. I mean, and you're still making money on concessions and different things like that and, and merchandise. So Opening up on a Friday is certainly not a bad idea, and it showed because the entire weekend just was flooded with people, and it was it's good to see. And I, I think it was a smart business decision for the the long term that you're not playing the short game. That you, in that situation you're playing the long game, and I'd like to see more racetracks maybe open up and and have a thought process like that. And you, you have to wonder how many of those folks that were there Sunday. Stop buying the free Friday and said, "Man, this is pretty cool. Let me buy a ticket for Sunday." You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, good stuff all around for Long Beach. Um, we're on to Barber next, and Joey, you'll be there. Um, Barber, the last two years, been won by a certain Mister Joseph Newgarden. Will Power should have won last year. Yeah, yeah, but oh it, man, he had some he had some crazy pace in that car. If not for that that uh, I think it was a left rear contact with Dixon or or what have you, I think, and, and his left rear or right rear went down. Uh, I can't remember how, but uh, man, I, I this is one of those times because the Universal Aero Kit. I'm really intrigued more than maybe any other track on the circuit to see how it caters to Barber because Barber has been such a hang on, hold on, and and just turn it and we know that barber's more fit it was it was built to be a motorcycle track and the fact that it can host indie cars and and you see some really cool shows and dynamic strategy involved it is a lot of fun and i'm really curious to see how this universal aero kit races at a place like that a natural terrain road course something we haven't seen yet this year and um yeah i, I think it's going to be very interesting because that'll kind of set the pace for set the tone rather for what we might see at mid ohio and places like that Absolutely, yes. You've got uh, New Garden has won there a couple of times. Ryan Hunter Ray has won there a couple of times, um, and, and Rossi is is right up there when you look at who's going to be good at Barber. So, I mean, Joey, who do you like for Barber? Oh man, that's. 
I know. I, this this was tough to call. Yeah, I was trying to do my do my picks in the pool. I'm thinking, yeah, Graham Ray will be pretty good. Uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, Rossi, and, and you know, Will Power, New Garden. The names just keep Pagano. The names just keep coming at you. Like, man, uh-huh. there's, there's a lot of guys who are going to be really good there, but only one of them can win. Well, according to Marco Andretti's tweet after Long Beach, if he can get his head out of his ass and qualify in the top ten, he's going to win a race. So if that happens, I'd say, you know, if he qualifies in the top ten, look out for him. But uh, otherwise, I think it's going to be somebody from Honda. I just don't know who, honestly. I think it's, I think you're looking at somebody like Dixon, maybe Hunter Ray finally getting that, that drought off his back. I, that's probably who I would look for. Maybe, um, maybe even a guy like Robert Wickens, who was kind of low, uh, low, low key at Long Beach, but he, I mean, he wasn't terrible. But he wasn't as really good as he was in the first two races. But uh, but that the you know the the type of racing he's been doing that should fit his style pretty well. Perhaps, perhaps not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's such a judgment call. It's. it's it's really out of every race this season. Barber to me is probably the biggest unknown. I mean, because everything else, there's there's a heavy importance on qualifying and, and minimizing mistakes. I mean, just as soon as we say somebody like Wickens, I would actually be hard pressed to say what about his teammate because you know his teammate's not too shabby at, at places like this either. But uh, I mean, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick with the. Uh, the Dixon idea because of the whole mid Ohio and what he's been able to do. I think Powers, you know, a Penske guy could easily get up there. I mean, Pagano, Pagano definitely is somebody that we, when you look at Barber, he needs a really good finish because I mean he's he's right ahead of Charlie Kimball I think, um, which is back in like 18th or 17th in points, one point ahead of Kimball, um, who just got Carlin's first top ten three races into the Verizon IndyCar Series um, season career. Uh, Carlin's got a top ten with Kimball after Long Beach, so that was pretty cool. But that is yeah, Pagano cool, yeah. with yeah, Pagano definitely needs one after the the first opening lap. Couldn't even get to the first corner DNF at Long Beach. He needs a good rebound. It'd be a good springboard for him going to the Indy GP too, because we all know that that board that not board a Pagano somebody to beat at uh, the GP. All right, so Seth, you get a pick for Barber. Uh, Ray Hall. All right, Gray. Gosh, um, Newgarden. Good pick. Richard, who do you like? Paginot. Paginot. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Will Power then, since you all left him for me. So, uh, with that being said, IndyCar is going to be at uh, Alabama next weekend. Joey, you'll be there. I look forward to talking to you next week about all your experiences at Alabama. That is one of the neatest tracks on the schedule. Uh, but let's talk about Formula One. Formula One was in Shanghai. Uh, Richard, you're our resident Formula One expert. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo won the race. Um, desperately needed win for Red Bull after uh, after Ferrari has uh, taken the first two wins and three races in, and Mercedes is still winless. So uh, yeah. kind of take us through this because it wasn't – there was a little bit of luck, a little bit of safety car, a little, 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 little bit of things that fell right into uh, Daniel's lap there. So, uh, Richard, I'll let you take us through it. Well, first off, one of the things we saw, uh, for, for, probably for the first time in, goodness me, what, the, the hybrid era, so four, four and a bit years, Mercedes really weren't at the races. Uh, you know, in qualifying, they uh, both 
Bottas and, and Hamilton were were soundly beaten by the two Ferraris. I think half a second was the gap there, which was, was pretty unheard of, especially after uh, some of the comments coming out of Red uh, out of Ferrari about Mercedes' special qualifying modes and, and all this other stuff. And then, of course, as soon as uh, the Ferraris are, are quick at, uh, at China, Hamilton makes some comments about how it's unusual that the Ferrari is quick everywhere. It is just silly tit-for-tat. Comments in the media, I, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, really going on there. It's just they like the sound of their own voices. Um, so you go into the race and you've got a scenario where you're looking for the Ferraris to really to dominate the race. Uh, Bottas gets a good start, gets ahead of uh, Raikkonen who drops back and, and sort of Bottas can hold himself to... Um, uh, you know, Bottas could sort of maintain a gap to Vettel. I don't think he could ever really push him. Uh, and we saw a scenario where it was pretty much going to plan for for, for uh, Vettel, really. And then there was the pit stop strategy change where that got Bottas ahead of Vettel on the first round of pit stops, which was a little bit, uh, you know, unexpected there. And, you know, almost sort of you know, looking back at what we've seen in previous races where you know, Mercedes has been caught out by Ferrari. You know, Ferrari now caught out by Mercedes in this instance. Uh, and then you had the two Toro Rossos after you know, really strong showing in Bahrain were nowhere. And they managed to trip over themselves uh, and leave Debris all over the, the uh, hairpin towards the end of the lap there. And it was a bit amateurish by both of those guys, really. And, and not really what, uh, especially in the Red Bull Junior team, not really something you want to do to, to sort of capture the imagination of the Red Bull bosses. And uh, it brings out the safety car. Now, timing of the safety car was critical here. And um, the scenario was that both Bottas and, and Vettel were past the safety car, or past the, I believe they were past the pit entry when the safety car was called out. So they didn't have an opportunity to pit. Mercedes decided not to pit Hamilton because they thought that they wouldn't be, there wasn't the advantage of going onto the soft tyres, losing track position, and they anticipated that it would be harder to pass than it actually turned out to be. So for the second time in the race, you saw Red Bull pull off a, I'm not going to say a master stroke, but a well-executed pit stop routine where both, Verstappen and Botta and uh, sorry Ricciardo sort of pitted back to back, and uh, they were on the quicker tire, far far quicker tire, and they they moved through the field incredibly aggressively. Uh, when Verstappen came up against uh, Hamilton, he ended up being I wouldn't say Hamilton pushed him wide, but he certainly you know ran out of road, and, and Hamilton used the limits of the track, which put Verstappen behind Ricciardo. And then Ricciardo, with some fantastic clean passing, some great moves there towards the end of the race. And then you had, uh, to sort of cap it all off, uh, Max sort of making a bit of a clumsy move on Sebastian Vettel there and, and pushing them both out of contention. Verstappen got a, a penalty for that move and and uh, Vettel got damage, which drops him, I believe it was to seventh by the end of the race. So uh, not the race that uh, they'd expected. And... I think it's probably fair to say that in all three races this season, 
the the fastest car hasn't won, which it is great for the sport and sets up you know the championship really really nicely. But it's sort of it makes it predicting and it makes us look sound very stupid when we try and predict who's going to win these races. But it's been uh, it's been fantastic. And and as a side note, this is the first time in the hybrid era that Mercedes have gone three races without winning. So uh, it's it's. You know, these teams are starting to get closer and closer, and you're starting to see a little bit of a shift. Uh, and hopefully, you know, going to Azerbaijan again, we'll see another uh, exciting race. Now, now, Joe, you've got some comments about Ferrari's strategy. Yeah, I, I didn't quite understand why, essentially, I mean, Ahon Kimi out pretty bad. I mean, you're looking at the start, and... You know, Vettel's already got his wheels turned five degrees to the right, so whenever he comes off the line, him and Kimi both got decent starts, but Kimi got a slightly better one to pull even with Vettel, and Vettel, if Kimi didn't let out with the bad angle going into one, they were going to wreck, so he had to back out. That brought Bodas past, that brought Verstappen past, and then, you know, Kimi's sitting right there in P4 trying to fend off Hamilton for a little bit, and, I mean, they kept Kimi out there until, what was it, like lap 29, I think, Richard, something like that? It and, was well into the race. It was quite deep into the race, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, they were like, oh, we're going to see if, essentially it was like, okay, well, we're going to use Kimi now as the guy to back up Botus with Vettel, and it, it backfired. I just, this was probably the worst strategical race that I've maybe seen Ferrari do in, quite a long time. I mean, they were trying to find ways to not win. What they did on Sunday was reminiscent of how Mercedes took themselves out of races and Ferrari pounced. It, I mean, it's very unique. And you know what? If I'm Mercedes, you look at how Ricardo's running. You see that right now Botas is, has been taking Hamilton to the woodshed uh, recently. I, I think you've got to have some heavy consideration. I don't care if he is a four-time champ. I, I think there's got to be some consideration there. So, you know what? Uh, Danny Rick keeps winning these races, and he's not doing it from the front row. He's doing it from P4, P5, P6, and he's always digging. I mean, the story with Ricardo to me was so fascinating because I'm sitting there at the Airbnb out in Long Beach, and I'm watching qualifying, and Danny Ricardo had the engine issue in FP3, barely got out for Q1, made one lap in Q1 to advance to Q2, Finally got everything settled to get into Q3. Borderline was ready to start at the back of the field or from pit lane. So to go from barely being able to make qualifying after some some parts swap there to being a guy that starts uh, P6 and goes on to win this race, I, incredible, incredible drive. It's without question a drive that should land him, if not a permanent situation as lead driver at Red Bull. You would think that somebody like Ferrari or Mercedes is definitely going to come calling after him continuing to put those kind of performances in. But you make that point, but if, if Verstappen hadn't, you know, Verstappen was ahead on track at the point where they made the strategy call, and if Verstappen hadn't been quite so hot-headed in trying to force his way past Hamilton, and had a yeah, little bit is. more... Oh, yeah, no, 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 for sure, for sure, I, I do understand that, but, you know, that will come from, you know, Verstappen's standpoint, uh, you know, eventually. Um, you know, Verstappen's, what, 20, 21 now? I mean, he's certainly got time on his side. And also, I'm not saying that uh, Ricciardo's an elder statesman by any stretch of the imagination. But if you're Red Bull, you know, where does your future lie? Um, yeah, I agree. I, and if you you're go- going to have to have a one and a two, then you probably are going to look at Verstappen a little bit more. 
uh, rightly or wrongly, at the moment, you know. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Obviously, they're looking at you know long-term sustainability with these guys, and uh, I, it'll be fascinating to see which way they go and how they try to to sort of play this out and keep you know keep everybody happy. I, I know they, they I know they feel like maybe in Verstappen they have the next Sebastian Vettel, somebody that could be there for you know six, seven, eight years and, and win them a handful of championships, and then. Yeah, if he can learn from his mistakes, he can. But you've got one kid that's trying to drive like Ayrton Senna, and he doesn't have anywhere near the ability to judge when he makes correct passes. He couldn't just wait two or three corners. And then you got a guy like Ricardo who, more calculated, while still being aggressive, and you could argue he's driving like a lame pros, which is kind of funny to have the similarities there. I, I just look at it like, yeah, Ricardo I think is like 26, 27, 28, something like that. So, yeah, there's a, a decent age gap there. But we all know that money talks in Formula One, and you're with Verstappen. Actually, with any driver, I, just, I can't think, especially after Vettel, that any one driver is going to stay at one team for ten or fifteen years. And we're looking at Verstappen, who, yeah, he just signed a big deal. I'd argue that that's probably his last deal that he's going to sign with Red Bull, and that you're going to see him get offers at Mercedes, or if Renault starts to look really, really good. I mean. The one thing that Red Bull have in their back pocket is Carlos Saints because no matter what happens this year, they have the ability to get him back and put him in that seat right next to Verstappen. And I would argue that Carlos Saints is a more well-rounded driver and is a guy that can match Verstappen talent for talent while still making better passes and better judgments. So I I don't know. Like It doesn't make any difference to me how talented you are if you're not getting the job done. And right now, Verstappen just isn't. I mean... He's like Vettel said. You've got a hundred grand prix under your belt. I can't call you, you know, young and in development at this point. All right. So where are we off next to in Formula One? We, we, uh, we have, Azerbaijan. We, and is that this coming week, or we have a week off? It's a week off. Week off. Okay. Then Azerbaijan, which is a very tight little fake Monaco. So <laughs> <laughs> it'll be uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, the first year they went there, I think everybody was a little bit like overly cautious about. You know, all these tight corners and driving around the castle there. But then last year, everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's easy around here. And it got a little bit hairy. Hey, I got a question, actually, for, for you, Richard, on this one. Um, with Baku, every time we that we see F1 go there, the temperatures are hot and we, tires are always kind of a, a weird issue. And usually Force India is a team that takes advantage and gets podiums out there, runs strong. I don't necessarily predict that for them this, this next race, but... Because we're going there at a different time of the year, is it still just as hot where we're running into the same weather issues that we had back back in the day? That's a very good question. I, I can't, I don't know, unfortunately, uh, what the forecast is for this weekend. But uh, I think it's, I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty hot climate there anyway. Um, and to, to a certain extent, the heat issue isn't so much the ambient temperature; it, it's how you. These tyres have a very, very well-defined operating window. Um, you know, they've got, they've got 
you only have a few, you know, and it's how you maintain that window, how you can keep the tires in the correct operating zone, which is the challenge. And some, some teams get it, you know, and that's where you often hear of these teams complaining of overheating, uh, you know, the tires not getting enough heat into the tires, whichever way it may be. So, uh, I think no matter what the temperature is, it's how the teams can build their tyre, um, you know, and work their tyre into that temperature range that's more of the issue rather than the ambient temperature. Some teams who naturally overheat their tyres will probably struggle on hotter tracks. Some teams that struggle to get heat into their tyres will probably struggle on colder tracks. So it's, it's more about how they get into their window than the actual ambient temperature, I think. All right, so let's look down the grid a bit. Um, McLaren actually had a pretty decent weekend. Uh, Alonso was uh, was not half bad today or this past weekend. So, uh, and Hulkenberg was uh, there as well. So, let's talk about McLaren and and with the Renault engine. Is is, is uh, are we going to see Alonso get back to the front, or is this still the continuation of a failed experiment, Richard? I mean, I think, again, we've talked about this on the show, you know, you look at Alonso's history of, of sort of jumping ship uh, and, or, you know, making bad career moves. And I was actually talking about this uh, with, with, a, with a former colleague earlier. There's a certain sense that, um, how should we put it, they, you know, McLaren have been more concerned with keeping Alonso than they are with, the best lot, you know, the best future for the team in terms of engine uh, deal. You know, you can argue, and, and to a certain extent, you'd be right to argue that a Honda is the way to go long term. I'm not saying that they're they're good at the moment, or they're they're capable at the moment of um, beating any of the you know the, the likes of uh, Renault and Ferrari and Mercedes. But if they're going to stick at it, they'll stick to it and they'll they'll do a good job at it. Uh, the, the money that Mercedes, McLaren are giving up by ditching a Honda, again, is that worth it? Uh, I, I question that. I, I genuinely do. I think that, and this is another district, and Alonso, to my mind, is one of the, if not the most talented driver in the grid. My question is, is he worth it? You know, have they been sort of not blackmailed, but their hand forced by Alonso? And is that fair? Should they have said, well, sorry, Fernando, our future is with, with Honda. They're bringing $100, $150, 200000000 million into the team every year. Uh, you know, we believe we will be successful. Should they have gone down that route and, to a certain extent, told Alonso to you know, like it or go, go play somewhere else? Uh, I don't know. But I think the fact that Red Bull have won a race with the same engine, Renault are competitive with the same engine, Mercedes, oh, sorry, uh, McLaren, They've been competitive, but, you know, there's nowhere for them to hide now. And this is exposing them. I'm not saying they're bad, but are they as good as they've been saying for the last three or four years with that Honda engine? I'm not sure. I don't know. I just, I'm not used to uh, McLaren kowtowing, you know, to drivers. You know, we never saw that when Ron Dennis was well, in charge. But no. Ron Dennis is no longer there, so, I mean, it exactly. is what it is, why- you know. Yeah, I, I mean, my sort of, what's the word, my, my sort of belief, if you like, 
is that you will never win a world championship in Formula 1 as a customer engine. And Renault, going forward, will be a customer engine. You know, you've got the Renault works team back there. You're pretty certain that in the long run, uh, Red Bull will leave Renault in one form or another and end up going to potentially Honda, especially if Honda start to improve their performances with the Toro Rosso group. And, uh, you know, you just think that that backs them into a corner a little bit. Again, personally, I would have stuck with Honda and, and you know, played it out. You've made your bed. You've got to lay in it to a certain extent. So you're saying that the constructor era in Formula 1 is essentially over. And for, for teams like Williams, McLaren, and even Red Bull, who are constructors who purchase a customer engine, are, will, will never be ahead of the Ferraris uh, or Mercedes or factory teams. I struggle to see, with the money involved these days, how that is a going proposition for these companies which are an engine manufacturer and a team in the future. And that's, absolute, at- and that's absolutely sad because Formula One was built on constructors, you know. Oh, no, yeah. without, yeah. Any, without any hesitation. And I, I, I do, I totally agree. But you look at the politics of it and you look at the financial situation of it. And, and you know, if, if you put your, for want of a better word, your team earner hat on, or your, you, if you're the boss of Renault and you have your own team, which is your constructor, chassis, and engine, and then you're selling that engine to a team that's beating you, okay, yes, there is a certain amount of uh, pride there that you've made an engine which is capable of championship, but we all know that it's Red Bull that are on the Constructors' Championship trophy, not Renault. I mean, and it's, it, it, it's, it's Mercedes on there, it's... You know, if Williams won a championship, it would be Williams, not Williams Honda and Williams Renault. That's who everybody thinks. And, you know, when McLaren won the championships, you don't think of, you do to a certain extent, but you don't instantly think, well, it was McLaren Honda and McLaren Mercedes that won those championships. Um, so I, I think. Or, or, that, or McLaren Tag. McLaren Tag Porsche, yes. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, so, I mean, so, what's, what's the possibility that uh, Honda enters a straight factory team? I don't think they will. They've done yeah. that and they got burnt. They don't understand. Sure, yeah. Well, you see, you argue that. You, 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 you sort of mentioned that. But what you have to remember is that the, the Braun car, which won in 2009, I think it was, that was basically a Honda car. It was funded by Honda. Even though Honda had officially pulled out, they paid for that car because it was cheaper for them to pay for that team for a year than it was to fold the team. So... That car that you saw there was a Honda car. Now, talking to people that you know, were at the team at the time and, and had some knowledge of it, the fact that they went to the Mercedes engine actually found them about a second to three or three quarters of a second into a second a lap over the Honda engine. So in a way, it was the fact that it was a Mercedes engine in the back of that car which helped them win the championship. Um, so I, I just I can't say, I think Honda now are in a position where like, okay, let's just stick to the engine. Let's get that bit right. Let's get that bit working. And I wouldn't be surprised as to say you don't see a Red Bull Honda next year. Wouldn't surprise me in a bit. So, uh, anyway, with that being said, um, we need to move on. Now, Joey, uh, you've got to uh, get on the road. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Before you uh, make an exit and start packing your baggage to go to Alabama, do you have any final thoughts you want to add to the show? 
before we start talking about uh, Bristol? Um, I guess my final thought is just to touch on something like what y'all were just talking about with Honda, and that's just I could see a scenario playing out where at some point Honda buy out an established Formula One team, but they would have to be established, and they would have to have been running the Honda engine program for quite a while. So, but you, you know, see, they tried that with VAR, and it really. Yeah. And I know they're not established, established, but it it just didn't really work, did it? You know, it was no. a bit of a anti-climax, want of a better word. And um, as, as I say, I think they learn. I mean. They had some really good guys in there, you know, at BAR, like guys like Jeff Willis and guys like that, who were were very, very, very well regarded in the sport. And they tried to bring in their own sort of Japanese guys, and you know, it just didn't work. And I think hopefully they they took a huge hit on that. So hopefully they've learned their lessons a little bit and are going to let the experts do, stick to it. I guess. Yeah, I mean, so from that end, also to kind of go with that final thought is I don't think you're ever going to see a situation anytime soon unless the rules completely change. Um, it would be embarrassing for teams like Mercedes if Williams was kicking their ass. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. So I, a certain extent, they don't allow it. <laughs> yeah, so if they're, if they're in a head-to-head battle for the championship – you really think some of those uh, MG UK parts and other things that are going to be going their way, you don't think they might have a little bit of wear and life on them? Because I, well, exactly. I bet you, I mean, in, yeah. So when I was at Williams, there was when you know Williams started to push Mercedes, there was rumours that Mercedes insisted on a more aggressive cooling package for the Williams cars. Now it probably didn't need it, you know, but that was Williams. Oh, that was Mercedes' way of sort of covering themselves and 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 uh, you know forcing Williams to virtually slow their car down. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, that was all rumour and hearsay. I don't want to make any accusations of anybody, but uh, it, it, exactly, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, look, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, the Friday afternoon part you know, you've ended up getting. Where, where's NASCAR this weekend, anyway, speaking of speaking of my final thought? Richmond. Richmond. Uh, I'll go Boyer. Okay. So, uh, with that being said, Joey, I wish you safe travels to Alabama, and we'll talk about this Bristol race. And Gray, my good friend, um, you uh, have been in NASCAR as long as anybody in the world, and Seth, you were at the race. So, uh, Gray, let's talk about this uh, Bristol race. Um, you know, it's a, we plagued by some weather. Um, the, the, the poor stands were empty both days. <laughs> I think the, the stands were empty the first day uh, due to the fact that the weather forecast was horrible. The fans are pretty. The, the stands were empty the second day due to the fact that it was Monday and people had to work. But um, well, they put on a pretty good race, huh? It, it did, uh, if I may, real quick. As far as the stands being empty the first day, a lot of people didn't actually expect NASCAR to even start the race. Um, just for example, there were a few fans I spoke to. They were still sitting in their trucks when they heard the jet dryers light up, and they went running in and got there just as the green flag started. And there were a handful of teams that weren't even set up by the time the green flag waved. Yeah, and, I, and to be honest, uh, I was I had resigned to the fact that the race was was not going to go off. And uh, I happened to be 
flipping the channels and come upon the the race channel and we're 15 laps in and I'm thinking, well, <laughs> maybe they're running, you know, showing last year's race and then I start looking at the car numbers and recognize, no, this is, this is live. So yeah, you know, it went off and all the forecasts were terrible. Uh, they were given a 15% chance of uh, starting the race and that really kept a lot of people away and I'm sure it kept a lot of the walk-up no, it kept a lot of the walk-up crack and probably kept a lot of the people away that, that even held tickets for it. So it's, uh, you know, not really a it, – it's, it's bad in, in that regard. But there again, NASCAR would run the race if there was one person in stands or not because, you know, it's all driven by television now. But uh, it was a great – it was two great days of racing. Those guys uh, actually put on a really good show uh, – for two days, I, you know, the weather was wacky and, and it was cold, but uh, we saw some really good racing at Bristol, uh, and it's a shame that uh, they didn't have better weather and, uh, and, and be able to do it in front of an on-hand crowd. All right, so Kyle Busch took the win. Uh, yes. There's a little, little, little bumping and running there, there near the end there. Um, uh, who were some of the other dominant cars of the day? I'm trying to trying to remember Kyle Larson because I, I watched it. Yes, Kyle Larson. I watched it. Uh, Ryan Mrs. Blaney. So. Ryan Blaney led out of the first 117 laps. He led 99 and got swept up in that multi car accident uh, just before the end of stage two. Uh, Chris Busher and Trevor Bain got together, spinning. The two, uh, both themselves and Jamie McMurray and Har- uh, Harrison Rhodes going into turn three, and Blaney had absolutely nowhere to go. Yeah, he was racing side by side with the two car as they, the appro- as they approached the wreck, and you know, uh, Blaney could no could go nowhere, and it's a shame because he had a really he had a really good car. Larson was great, and and Larson, you know, he he got. I tell you, the good thing about it was, you know, the cars the cars ran that were able to pass uh, this time and uh, uh, run multiple grooves. Uh, really worked well. Uh, Larson, you know, he he got taken out uh, by Ryan Newman there late in the race and was able to uh, recover and and come back and race for the win. So uh, you know, when I thought his day was going to be done, uh, Ricky Stenhouse had a had a good day. Uh, uh, the two car Keselowski, he had a good day, but faded faded there at the end. Bubba Wallace had a really good day uh, in the forty three car. He showed uh, showed some strength there in that car, and, and until he faded faded at the end. So it was a lot of a lot of players there that that ran uh, particularly well. Some of the cars that uh, we normally think well were taken out uh, taken out early. The seventy eight was caught up on that lap three wreck. That, As uh, was Chase Elliott. Chase Elliott caught and, up. And and somebody else who was caught up in that uh, was Michael McDowell, who had an excellent qualifying run, qualified ninth, and he was fastest in the final practice. His team was one of the teams that was not set up when the green flag fell, so he ended up not making the crash clock because the team wasn't set up properly. To, uh, and prepared for him to come down pit road on lap three. Yeah, and, and that that's unfortunate. There again, NASCAR just trying to beat the clock, and I think 
I think maybe NASCAR learned a little bit of lesson, but there again, so much of what, what is done is dictated by TV. They did announce on Saturday that they were going to move the start time up by one hour, and, and, and they achieved that and got lucky and got a break and were able, were able to do it. But I tell you, anytime you've got when they knew, I mean, it was obvious that uh, the weather forecast was not going to allow them to run a complete race on on on, on, uh, well, on Sunday, much less close. even get to the halfway point. Well, they got close. They got 204 laps in. Granted, there were a couple stoppages. One of them was for that multi-car wreck, which if they didn't have to red flag it for that wreck, they may they, have made it. They would have made it. But there again, then 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 they they don't have a uh, they don't have a full race at all. They they stop after segment segment two, and they've only run you know half the race. As it was, they would have been able to get in the probably get in the complete race on Monday had they started it. Uh, you know, a little bit earlier than than one o'clock. So anyway, I mean, it, there's, it's one of those damned if you damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situations for NASCAR, and it's nothing they can do about the weather. Weather, you know, weather's going to gonna come in, and, and so far, weather has been a major story uh, well, this year already. They, w- they wouldn't have gotten the entire race in on Monday, even if they had started an hour earlier before one. They would have had to start around 11, and it was freezing rain at 11 p- uh, a.m., but... Immediately after the race, I'm standing there on pit road trying to get a word with Ricky Stenhouse Jr., and it starts snowing. Yeah, I saw the snow in Victory Lane, yeah. But, yeah, it, you know, it, it's just it's, it's tough, and I hated, hated it for the fans who lost money and, and, uh, and, and didn't get to, uh, to use the tickets they bought. Uh, just, just a bad deal all the way around. But uh, that's the chance you take sometimes with, with, with this stuff. But... You know, all in all, if there is a silver lining in, in this story for Bristol, it was that the racing was really good. It was a good race, and the, and the, and the, and the, the cars and the stars put on a great show. Now, something I do want to mention, uh, going back to uh, Bubba Wallace, he uh, worked his way up to the lead. He led six laps, the first six laps he's ever led in his Cup Series career, and he moved... Brad Keselowski out of the way for it. He earned that lead. He did not get it right. via pitch strategy he, or anything like that. He drove to the front. And uh, granted, it's the first time uh, we're going to say this and probably one of the only times we'll have to say this, but it was the first laps led by an African-American in the premier series of NASCAR since Wendell Scott won in 1963. And that was at Jacksonville, yes. That was And it's also the first time in the modern era that an African-American has led in NASCAR. And, and like I said, he earned it. He deserved it. He drove the car to the front, and, and, and he, he, he ran a good race. Uh, I know he was disappointed because uh, because he, he faded there at the end, but hey, uh, there's uh, it was a shot in the arm for that team, uh, and, and and it's going to give him some confidence, particularly going into this weekend's race at Richmond. Now, the, I'm just going to say this one thing: uh, the reason why he Keselowski and a few others faded at the end, there was that brief rain shower right after 
uh, Wall- Bubba Wallace got the lead, and both Keselowski, uh, Bubba Wallace, Casey Kane, and a handful of others, they were set up for a track that was going to get uh, looser. It never got looser because the rain and the water washed the rubber back off the track. Yeah, a lot, a lot of guys, you know, had different strategies on tires there at the end. Some guys were able to come and get – some guys stayed out stayed out on tires uh, because they didn't want to give up track position. Other guys came to pit road and got four. So it was a little bit different. Everybody played a little bit different strategy there uh, late in the race, too, that uh, kind of bit helped some guys and bit some others. Now, while I was there – I asked a few uh, crew members about the pit guns because that's been one of the big stories that's been going on this year. Apparently, there's some stuff with the pit guns that the manufacturer promised prior to the start of the year that they haven't followed through with. One was uh, diagnostics, which would tell the the tire changer and again, I'm hearing this from the pit crews. Whether or not this is accurate, I don't entirely know. That will tell the tire changer whether or not he actually got each lug nut tight. And there's also supposed to be telemetry that would tell them about the performance of the gun, whether or not it was working correctly. Again, neither of those have been followed through. But, but going on with the pit guns, there was also been talked that all the teams voted for this. All the teams wanted this. All the teams asked for this. NASCAR actually had the teams vote on this. Yes. And yes. And there were several teams that voted against this, including Gibbs, including Stuart Haas. Yep. And then there were teams that voted for this. And my understanding is that there may or may not have been a tie that NASCAR broke. That's, anyway. inter- that's interesting. That really, yeah. But NASCAR would have the upper hand, and that you know, if we got a tie. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. Anyway, I do also want to mention some stuff that happened in the Xfinity series real quick, uh, because we also had an Xfinity series race. It was the first Dash for Cash race, so there were no Cup drivers whatsoever in the field. Ryan Priest, who was eligible for the Dash for Cash at Bristol, won the race. However. He is not eligible at Richmond because he is not entered at Richmond. He is driving part-time for Joe Gibbs Racing. The four drivers for the Dash for Cash at Richmond are Justin Allgaier and Elliot Sadler, Spencer Gallagher, and Daniel Hemrick. Now, post-race, uh, NASCAR had said that Hemrick had failed tech because his toe was out of alignment, mechanical measurements, and that Brandon Jones would be in the dash for cash. Sunday morning, NASCAR admitted that they made a mistake. Uh, Series Managing Director Wayne Otten uh, spoke to us in the media center. According to the Xfinity Series rules, in order for a car to fail tech and reach the penalty of an L1 penalty, the car would have to be out of alignment on both the left and the right. Hemmerich's car was only out of alignment on the right rear. Therefore, it does not amount to an L1 penalty, and he is still in the, in the dash for cash. So, 
essentially he failed, but he didn't fail tech. I guess it depends on what side of the story you, now, you believe, but uh, one one guy's in a dash, one guy ain't. So, And the last thing I do want to say about the Xfinity Series race, about halfway through the race, uh, there was an absence between Cody Ware and Vinnie Miller, and checking up for it, Christopher Bell slammed on the brakes, and he had been having issues with his brakes prior. They locked up, and he whipped into the wreck, the force of the impact was so great it buckled the roof. Ooh. And, yeah. and they parked the car right outside the media center. I went out and took pictures of it, but crew members and NASCAR officials were not letting anybody take pictures of the right side where the impact was. Now, whether or not NASCAR took the car, or if NASCAR was just helping uh, them get the cover on it, I'm not sure, but to me, with how much the roof buckled, I think NASCAR may have wanted to take a look at the car. Well, you've got the new uh, composite body, and I'm sure that there's still, still a work in progress, and they're looking at some of those things. And I imagine that the car did make its way back to the tech center for, for more evaluation. All right, so guys, we are off to Richmond next week. We've just got about two minutes left in the show. So let's, uh, Joy's already picked Clint Boyer. So, Richard, who do you like? Truex. And Gray? Oh, boy. Let's see. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with, uh, the 42 because, uh, he won there in the fall and he's left Bristol pretty disappointed this weekend. So I think he, See if he can rebound and uh, and show some strength there, and then that would be uh, that'd be a, a good a good win for Chevrolet if they can get it. Good win for Chevrolet, Chip Ganassi, Chip Ganassi, and uh, Kyle Larson. Yeah. So Seth, who do you like? Uh, I'm going to go with Kyle Busch, who is now fifteenth uh, on the list for all time wins. Okay, and I'm going to go for Darren Wallace because. That guy has just been chomping at the bit for a race win, and he's really good on the short tracks. Uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm foolish for picking him, but hey, you know what? Uh, that that little team, and I, it, it's sad to say that uh, you know Richard Petty Motorsports is a little team in the sport. <laughs> but um, I, I think uh, Darrell Wallace has what it takes to be a NASCAR guy, and I think he's gonna kind of kind of push his way to the front there at Bristol, so or at at, at um, Richmond rather, so. Uh, with that being said, we're just about out of time. Um, we'll be back on in a week. I want to thank you, Gray Warren. I want to thank you, Richard Uden, Seth Eggert. I want to thank Joey Barnes, who uh, left a little earlier. Um, I want to thank the Who Was Who Radio Network and iHeartRadio for hosting our show. And, guys, we'll uh, talk to you in one week. Good night. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.